Jessie Strave is an assistant professor of sociology at Duke University. Her research looks at the experiences, reproduction, and alleviation of social class, which is a common thread throughout her work. In this episode, we discuss her publication, Privilege Lost, Who Leaves the Upper Middle Class and How They Fall. Hi, Jesse, and welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here today, and I'm very excited to know more about you and about the work you've been doing. So to get us started, I'd just like to know a little bit about yourself, about your academic background, and more specifically about your interest in social class and inequality as areas of research. Yeah, thanks, thanks so much for having me. Um, so my name is Jesse Strive. I'm an associate professor of sociology at Duke University. I've been studying social class inequality most of my career. Um, and I would say it's probably something that's interested me for most of my life. Um, so I grew up in a town that really prided itself on its economic diversity, which I actually have no idea if it's true, but that was the narrative the town told itself about it. And I do remember going to a friend's house and she had an elevator in her house. And then I had another friend who lived with her many siblings in a one room um, apartment. And so I do remember seeing some economic inequality. I think I just, like a lot of kids, just was like, this is really unfair. Um, I think that was probably the start of me being interested in social class inequality. Um, and then I moved around a few times to places that people were primarily from different classes and started to get really interested in why it seemed like the class that they were in corresponded to a lot of their ideas about the world. Anything from like, what's fun? to do, what do you wanna do on the weekend? To like, what's your future gonna be like? How do you treat other people? Um, so just all sorts of things. And then I went to college at Trinity College in Connecticut, which is a small little college, but at the time it was rated the worst college in the United States for class relations. And so I was you know, very much exposed again to how class kind of affects us all. And so that really got me interested in it. And then reading a lot of sociology also got me interested in kind of how hard upward mobility is not only to accomplish, but also like the people who do it often get a little bit disillusioned with it. And I was like, they try so hard and they finally are upwardly mobile. And then they're like, oh, like this isn't all I thought it was going to be. And that just seemed awful to me that we put people through that. But first it's unfair. And then even the people who like overcome all these barriers, like still there's issues. Um, so I think there was that. Um, and then I started reading a lot of sociology and a lot of my work now is trying to figure out like the main theories say that this one thing will happen and the world actually shows it doesn't. Um, so <laughs> sort of like um, one of the main theories I use word to use, it's like, oh, people are never gonna love people from a different social class than they are. But then, but then you look at the data and you're like, oh, actually a lot of people marry somebody from a different social class background than they um, are, at least in the US. And so like, how does that happen? And kind of downward mobility is the same that sociologists don't talk about it much. And so I wanted to understand, well, like, how does it happen? Especially because it's not something that our theories are really equipped to explain. 
absolutely right and you know i think something that's really interesting that you mentioned is how a lot of your research is stuff that you've experienced and seen in your everyday life right i think again you know i think it really like takes us back to the point of how we are studying social beings and we are a part of these structures in that sense right and yeah you know i think it also sort of reminds me of this overly stated sort of idea of you know how america is this capitalist society and you know like the harder you work the greater you rise you know i think supposedly right like that's what you know like the mm-hmm. narrative says as well so keeping that in mind right i just like a brief context into you know what really class really looks like in america what are the different like classes and like how or, like stratified it is in in that sense yeah we're a very unequal country um and it depends on it's a more complicated question than it seems at first because what is class itself is a complicated question um so we have a lot of income inequality um especially compared to other countries that the US likes to compare ourselves to often western european countries um we but education and occupational inequality can be a little bit different and then there's mobility as well so it, it's also not just how much inequality do you have but how much the people move up and down the class ladder. In general, it's we just that we don't live up to our ideals, right? So we Americans like to talk to um about ourselves as we're the land of opportunity, like social class doesn't hold you back, you know, you can overcome your how you were raised, and that's just not very true. Um you know, certainly some people do it, but it's not the norm. And so I would say we're pretty unequal both compared to western european countries but also can just compared to how we think about ourselves and how we talk about ourselves as a country for sure yeah in fact i think something i'd like to pick up on a little bit more specifically right is the definition of class itself you know i think on like a basic level right i think we typically define class in terms of economic status but are there more angles to it and how really you know like do we like understand it uh, in that sense yeah a huge debate about this so Yeah, I think most people's intuition is it has something to do with economics. Sociologists tend to like to focus on occupation, um partly because that is related to the income people have, but a little bit more stable sometimes than the income that they have, um and because it relates to what they do on a day-to-day basis and kind of shapes their life more thoroughly than income gives you a lot of choices in how you're going to live your life if you have it. Um so there's there's debates about is it should we define it by occupation income education wealth um do we include debt so there's those debates there's also debates about are there clear boundaries around a class can we say something like there's an upper middle class there's a group of people who are in poverty or is it just a big continuum that we're all along and it doesn't make sense to cut them off anywhere if we do have categories there are debates about should we think of them as like something really big like the upper middle class or should we cut it up into really small chunks within that um and then there's if you do think there are categories then what are the dividing lines and we really don't agree on that either probably because it's just not really an objective thing to grant like you're you have to make some decisions that are a bit arbitrary and that might change as the economy changes and as people have different sorts of opportunities um so there is no agreement I like to use education and occupation together um mostly because I think they those two really do structure a lot of people's opportunities and because income is more volatile um so once you have a college degree you've always have to have a college degree right so it's a little bit more stable um but there are limitations 
to doing that as well. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I think we'll be debating how to best do it forever. And I hopefully we also can just define it in ways that make sense for our own projects. And once that's transparent, then people can see where we're coming from and weigh in about if they think the same would apply if we measure class differently. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, I think um, something else that's also often been brought up, right? Like, I'm not sure to what extent this is true, but a lot of people refer to the U.S. as this whole land of opportunity, right? Like where, you know, you enter and, you know, if you work hard enough then so you can make it, you know, I think like there are all of like these narratives of merit and growth, right? So I think something that's, you know, really interesting along those lines is that instead of looking at upward mobility, you look more at the idea of downward mobility, right? And how people move downwards. So I think, you know, like looking at that idea, just like a brief context into the book that you authored, why you've chosen like this topic more specifically to look at. Yeah, I really didn't know how to think about downward mobility. And I think partly that's the US and the narratives that we have about the class system. So we have this narrative of the American dream you mentioned, which is really a narrative about upward mobility, right? So if you work hard and you play by the rules and you're really motivated, you can get ahead. And sociologists spend a lot of time showing how that's not true. Um, and then we have this other narrative in the country that's kind of like the rigged class system narrative, which is like the rich have rigged the system so that they can stay rich or the people at the top in general have rigged it so they can stay at the top. And the people at the bottom are then trapped to staying at the bottom. And I think sociologists would probably say that's an overstated narrative, but there's a pretty big grain of truth in it but it's a narrative of class reproduction. And there is a lot of class reproduction in the country, way more than there would be by chance. And if we had an entirely fair system, but then there's, there's those two narratives and there's no narrative of downward mobility. Um, so I was really curious how it happened and I didn't really have a starting point to think about like, how, how does this happen? And I was reading this book one day and it's kind of this like, encyclopedic overview of the state of class inequality in the country. And it had this graph in it that had the percentage of people who go to college and graduate um, by their parents' education and, and also their parents' income. And it was supposed to be showing these, and it does show these really big gaps by your parents' education or your parents' income. But I had just in my head thought like, oh, it must be like 80, 90% of people who parents have a college degree graduate from college themselves because we're so immersed in this rigged system narrative that I just thought, oh, like most people who grow up privileged or who grow up in the top income quintile, they must end up graduating from college. The system is set up for them to do so. And so when it was only about 50% of people whose parents have a college degree graduate from, them, from college themselves, I was just shocked. I was just like, how, like, what's going on? How does that happen? How does sociologists not talk about this? This seems like, it seems so strange to me. That number was pretty shocking. And then I looked at the numbers for occupation too, and it's about, I think, one in two sons of professionals don't become professionals themselves. So I'm guessing that number is even bigger for daughters of professionals. And that also just seems shocking to me because I think mostly because the story we tell and sociology is so much, especially qualitative sociology, is so centered on class reproduction that I just, I, in my head, those numbers were way higher than they were of how much class reproduction there was. So I just got really curious and I was just like, well, how does this happen that people who grew up with so much, especially 
people kind of in my generation and a little bit younger who grew up at a time after like incomes just took off for the for um, the college educated wealth gaps through there was so much going on that seemed like oh we're just going to get locked in to this class reproduction system and then to find out that kids from that same generation like not i mean way more than that would happen by chance if we lived in a fair class system but way less than the narrative made me think was going on and so i just wanted to understand like how does this happen given that all of the theories i read suggest it should not be happening or should rarely be happening mm, definitely right in fact you know i think like sort of draw parallels to it you know a lot of examples that i have sort of seen in my own life actually every single example i've seen in my own life right so if you come from you know a background where you're relatively like well off right then i would imagine that you can use the support structures of your family and your friends to you know like thrive in that sense right and even if you don't have you know like an occupation or, or like something to you know, like get going in like your class status right i think there are a lot of these support structures exist especially in like india right but i'm not really sure about how that works in the us because from my own understanding i think india also is a much more collective society as opposed to the us so i just like to hear your thoughts on that yeah no i i share your sense so i also grew up in the upper middle class and my feeling about it was always like i would have to try really hard to be downwardly mobile like i would have to go out of my way many many times in a very severe way to be downwardly mobile which is also kind of why it didn't make sense to me i just kept thinking how do people who grew up like me end up becoming downwardly mobile um so some of the advantages people like me and other people in the upper middle class especially white people in the upper middle class have are way more money right so and because our schools are um segregated like class because they're funded by the tax base in the local neighborhood to some degree um kind of opportunities for education are pretty based on money um so that's one really big one um your parents is having the knowledge of how the schools work how the colleges work that's very class stratified and so people whose parents have gone to college are much more helpful and you know just because they've gone through it they can help their kids go through it we have a very complicated college system with thousands of colleges and big application processes and people are some people are saving since before their kids are born and like getting their kids ready to have the right sort of application since they're toddlers so there's like a lot that can go into getting into college especially in elite college um networks right so just like who who do you know who could help you find a job or learn about different types of jobs um find an internship that sort of thing can be really helpful and is also concentrated in the upper middle class safety um you know our class or our neighborhoods are often somewhat segregated by class and it, it tends to be that the richer neighborhoods are much safer and not having that kind of burden of constantly worrying about not being safe is a huge privilege for people with more money nutrition um so those could go on and on but there's a lot of ways that having more money and parents who are professionals and who are highly educated helps kids in the upper middle class definitely right you know to sort of add on to your point of how for people like you and me right like we have to think a lot okay, like if i am in this class structure right like to go downwardly mobile would actually be quite hard because you know we have come to the point right where we are in like this 
structure ourselves right but having said so i think i know that your book draws on a lot of these examples of professionals stay at home mothers artists rebels so i'd just like to you know like pick on like one by one and sort of you know like understand right like how their context and circumstances shape like where they are right now so to get us going you know like on that path i think i just like to know a little bit about about the context of stay at home mothers first how exactly they go on 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 like this path of of like downward mobility in that sense yeah um so before i tell you about them let me give you like an overview of kind of the main way that downward mobility works um so what i did was i followed 107 kids from when they were about 13 to about when they were 28 um and when i say i i read their transcripts other people actually collected the data so i'm going to give them credit this is a um data from the national study of youth and religion and so so i just i got access to the transcripts that a lot of other people did when they interviewed these kids and so they interviewed them from kind of early teenage years to um, like after their transitioning to adulthood and in their mid to late 20s um and so what i found was that there's kind of a few steps in the process of going to down from um from the upper middle class to kind of towards the working class or towards the middle class just not the upper part of the middle class um and so it starts with how many resources the kids get from their parents So that early question I had of like well how do kids who grew up like me end up being downwardly mobile turned out just to be the wrong question right so a lot of kids who grew up in that upper middle class didn't actually grow up like me meaning they didn't get all the resources that we tend to think of upper middle class families having so we can kind of think of there being three main resources here the one's money one is human capital or kind of academic knowledge so kind of the ability to do well in school often because your parents really prepared you to do well in school so they went over how to read front with you from an early age how to do some math um and kind of gave you that academic foundation to really help you do well um and then the third skill is cultural capital in this case what i mean by that is um how to navigate institutions especially like school and college so some kids get all of those from their parents they get a lot of money they get um a lot of academic help and they get a lot of help about how to navigate institutions but not all kids even in the upper middle class get those from their parents and that can be for a lot of different reasons and we can kind of go into them as we talk about each group but i think the starting point is like you've got to kind of remember that not everybody gets all of those resources so once they don't get those resources what the people in my study did and i think this is like a somewhat unconscious process is they built an identity around the resources they don't have. So they would say I don't have they're not literally saying this right but the end process is like it looks what it looks like is I don't have the resources to be successful in this type of thing so I'm going to say that type of thing is not worth doing in the first place. So if they didn't get all of that academic help from their parents and all the knowledge about how to navigate institutions especially at school. This is all school kind of for suckers. Like who really wants to be good at school? Or I mean school's okay and all, but like it really detracts from what's important in life, like your relationships with your family, with your with romantic partners, with friends. And so like you really just shouldn't invest too much in school. Like it might be even be a little immoral to be a straight A student. That's just your priorities are off. And so people are doing this in all sorts of ways. 
And then they also live in communities that try to kind of draw them in to one sort of identity. Um, so the way that downward, downward mobility works is the kids who don't get certain resources are already a little bit disadvantaged. And then they develop this identity that says, well, you didn't need those resources anyways, so there's no reason to get them. So even though they grew up in the upper middle class and many of them are around friends, the, their parents' friends, their friends' parents, teachers, coaches, religious members, like they've got a ton of resources where they could figure out how do I get the resources that my parents didn't give to me? But instead of doing that, they say, oh, well, those resources aren't valuable anyways. So they, they don't end up getting them. And so that's how they end up being downward thing mobile. They kind of start as a disadvantage and then they develop this identity that says, you don't need those resources. So in regards to stay at home moms, and when I say that all the identity labels are kind of like who they're trying to be, right? They're as a 13 year old, you're not yet a stay at home mother, but they are imagining themselves as future stay at home mothers. And they're kind of acting in ways throughout their lives that are kind of practicing being a stay at home mother, even long before they actually become a mother at all, let alone a stay-at-home mother. Um, and so this group, they're mostly women, not surprisingly, and they're all women. Um, they, they don't get the resources they need to succeed in school. And the big reason that is for this group is that they tend to be raised by fathers who are professionals and often you know, very high-level professional CEOs, that sort of thing. And so their fathers are bringing home a lot of money. So they grew up in families with a lot of money, but their dads aren't home a lot because they're working so much. And so they're raised by their moms, but their moms aren't necessarily people who would be in the upper middle class if it wasn't for marriage. So there are people who sometimes didn't go to college at all, or they went to college and then dropped out maybe when they got pregnant, or they might have graduated but never worked a professional job. So they're not people who are as equipped to pass down a lot of academic and cultural knowledge. And so their kids grow up without getting it. And so it's almost like being raised by somebody in that working class, but having access to a lot of money. And so it turns out that's not a good way to stay in the upper middle class. So a lot of, and then a lot of these women also are growing up in families in conservative communities. So they're maybe very religious families or maybe just in parts of the country where there's pretty conservative gender roles. And so they're kind of pushed by their resources into not kind of thinking of school and work as something that they're gonna be really good at and put their identity into. And then they're pulled by their community to think, oh, wouldn't it be a stay-at-home mom be a really wonderful thing to be? It's a high status position in their communities. So. It, they end up then, they go to school, but they're like, ah, you know, they're kind of like acting out the stay-at-home mom identity from a young age. So they're, instead of like trying to get these resources to figure out how to do really well in school, they're saying, oh, you know, school is just something you have to get through before you go on with your life. Or they say, you know, school is really about dating. Like that's the time I get to spend with my boyfriend and that's what's important about school. <laughs> so they, they do that and then they, some go to college but they kind of find out college isn't really a place where you're just like there if you have no career goals. And so they, if the ones who go to college, some of them don't stay very long and others don't go to college because they say, 
I know who I want to be. I want to be a stay-at-home mom. I don't need a college degree for that. Um, and so without going to college or without graduating, they then end up not getting the resources they need to stay in the upper middle class and they fall out. And usually they do get to be the people they want to be. So they, they do get married and they become stay-at-home moms. But because of where they are in their lives, when they're trying to look for a spouse, they don't end up finding a spouse who's in the upper middle class. So they're not in college, so they don't find college educated men. And so they marry working class guys who are also really happy to be the provider and to let them be the stay at home mom. So they get to be exactly who they wanted to be and they're really excited about that. But for a lot of them, that doesn't allow them to stay in the upper middle class. Yeah, I mean, you know, that just, gives me a lot of context, right? I think to understand that you could go to school and, you know, I think like on the surface level, be more or less living like a similar life to think a lot of your other peers, but I think your objectives and the way you, you know, like sort of like go about things, I think is, is very different. So, yeah, so I think, you know, to look at like the other, the category of people you've looked at, right? I, I just like, you know, this whole other idea of, of the family man, right? Who is another um, group of people you've looked at, right? Who tend to experience, you know, like this concept of, of like downward mobility, right? Like, do you think that, or like, have your findings pointed to this idea of, of their context being more or less like similar to that of stay-at-home mothers or how has it really, you know, like worked out in, in their case? Yeah, it's kind of like the guy's version of being a stay-at-home mom. So for the, it's like their brothers, you know, in, in some ways. So not literally, but it could be. So they grow up in pretty similar circumstances. Often they're often in very conservative religions, or there are people who grew up kind of in the heartland of the country with more conservative gender roles. And they, the ones who are down where they mobile also grew up with parents who don't give them a ton of, um, of cultural capital or academic knowledge, right? So they're starting a little bit behind their other upper middle class peers in school. Um, and so they kind of make a virtue of necessity and say, ah, well, school's not that important anyways, right? What's really important is sometimes religion um, and for all of them being a good member of your family. And so you don't have to be good at school to be a good member of your family. And so they kind of, if they get through school, they you get these, like they do fine, right? But they're not excelling and that's not where their identity is. Um, some of them go to college. A lot of the guys who do go to college, because their goal is to become this kind of family-oriented person where they're, they, they're married, um, they have children, and they're a provider. So college in itself, like it's something, it's like a means to an end to do that. And so it makes it really easy for them to get off track when they meet somebody who can fulfill their real goal of getting married. But so a lot of these guys who go to college end up like totally sucked into a relationship and it takes up all their time and their emotional energy and that kind of distracts them from doing well in school. And so a lot of them end up dropping out temporarily or sometimes completely. Um, and, and then they find jobs and, but their jobs are not, you know, their jobs are also a means to an end. It's just a means to provide for their family so they aren't you know, trying to get promoted quickly. They're not trying to like really make a ton of accomplishments at work. Their identity is not in it. Their identity is in being a provider. Uh, and, and to be a provider, you can be a provider at a lot of different levels, depending on how much your family wants. 
And you and the idea too is that being career centered is a bad thing, right? Because that's taking time away from your family. And so it, they end up in, you know, they're employed, um, they did okay in school, but it's not enough in a very competitive economy to stay at the top of the class ladder. And so they're often downwardly mobile. Um, again, starting from a disadvantage of not getting a ton of resources from their parents, um, but then continuing along that path because they get this identity that says, well, school and work aren't that important anyways, at least as more than a means to an end. So they don't invest a lot in them. And then they, they do fine. Like they, they're still, you know, have a lot more privileges than a lot of people who grew up with a lot less, um, but they don't stay in the upper middle class. Right, yes. I think I'd imagine that it's not too different to that of stay-at-home moms, but of course, you know, there are like some overlaps and like some differences there, I guess. And yeah, you know, I think I'd imagine that both of these contexts are quite different from those of the artists and the rebels, which are, you know, other uh, like categories of people who you look at in your book, right? Because I think, you know, um, they aren't, you know, as family oriented or as, you know, stay at home oriented, of course they are. I mean, I would imagine them to have, you know, like a clear cut goal, right? But then is it that, you know, these careers or, you know, their like paths don't really, you know, like pay that well, or like, is it that a lot of the ideas that they have don't really materialize? You know, I think I just like a little bit more of, um, of a context there as to, you know, how they want like this path of downward mobility. So the rebels are, um, they're also men, they're mostly men, um, not all, but mostly. And they like the stay-at-home moms and like the family men grow up in families that don't give them a lot of cultural capital or a lot of academic knowledge. And for them, that can be for different reasons. So kind of unlike for the stay-at-home moms, where I think sometimes in their communities, it's not seen as super necessary to give girls a lot of, of these resources for them it's just kind of life happened in a way that they didn't get a lot of them so maybe their parents divorced and kind of were consumed in their own divorce and they didn't get them because of that sometimes their parents just are kind of more believers and like you figure it out yourself and we don't give you a lot of stuff some of them might have had kind of learning issues that made it hard for them to give them to get the resources their parents were trying to pass down um, but they grow up in liberal communities and liberal communities are different than conservative communities in the sense that while marriage is valued, it's supposed to happen later. So your career is supposed to come first and then you're supposed to get married. Whereas in conservative communities, family comes first. So you first get married and then you kind of get your career settled. And so that makes it harder for them to get any status when they're young from investing a lot in romantic relationships. But they, the rebels are mostly guys who then don't really have a way to get a lot of status. So they don't have the academic knowledge from their families to do really well in school. They also don't understand how to navigate school because their parents didn't help them as much with that. And they can't invest in relationships to get status because in their liberal communities, you shouldn't get too involved in a romantic relationship when you're young. So the only option they have to get status is to kind of opt out to say, well, I'm too cool for all of that. You know, like school is for losers. Romantic relationships just chain you down. They're not any good. Like being independent is what it's all about. I'm going to break the rules. I'm going to just show you like, I'm this fun loving, um, really independent rule breaking person. And that's really cool because the whole system's messed up anyways. Um, and, and so 
they can get some status from that, especially in high school and college. But it's hard to stay in the upper middle class that way. So what happens with them is most of them in my study do go to college. College to them is great because it's a big party. Right? In the US, there's kind of a way to go to a lot of colleges where the party life is very sanctioned and rebelling is high status and normal and doesn't get you kicked out if you don't take it too far. Uh, some of them do get kicked out and go back. Um, but you're allowed back in if you pay tuition. And so, so they're on this trajectory that they think is fine for a while. And then they realize they can't really be a rebel and have a professional job. Right? There's not a lot of employers who are like, oh, you love breaking rules and you don't want to follow directions and you don't want a boss. Yes, we will hire you. And so they are smart enough to realize that this is not going to be a good fit. And so most of them, they just don't even apply. Um, so they might be a waiter or something where they, you know, they can live with their friends and they'll party all the time and it's fine. Some of them end up in their parents' basements, um, but they end up on kind of this like sharply downwardly mobile path because they've never invested in any skills. And they, I think even more than that, they can't imagine themselves as people who are gonna go to work. <laughs> Because like, going to work just means following somebody else's rules and abiding by somebody else's goals. And they don't also have the cultural capital to kind of figure out where are the jobs where they maybe actually could be okay on their own. Like I kept thinking like, oh, you should be an entrepreneur or you should be like a real estate agent where you're kind of on your own most of the day. But they just, they kind of float. They don't invest in romantic relationships for the most part. And they end up kind of lonely and downwardly mobile. They're probably the least happy by the time they're reaching their 30s um, because they've not, they've kind of divested from everything and their families are at their wit's end at this point. And, and so they don't have a lot left. Um, so they're pretty sharply downwardly mobile, which again started from not getting a lot of resources, but really continued because of the identities they developed as a reaction to not having a lot of resources. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's pretty sad that way, right? You know, that you also mentioned that they are the least satisfied, especially by the time they reach their 30s, because they see that a lot of their peers are going on their own routes and they have their lives sorted in that sense. And, and I think, um, you know, I think a final uh, example I'd like to bring up is, which you mentioned in your book as this other category of, um, of people who go down this path, right, is that of athletes. Because, you know, I think it's also interesting because I've heard that a lot of, you know, these U.S. colleges and universities actually take people on an athletic scholarship. So I would imagine that such a scholarship and, you know, such recognition for your athletic skills actually, you know, like gets you ahead of the game in a lot of ways, right? So I just like to know as to how this, you know, actually works against their favor, especially later on in life. Yeah, so the artists and athletes are similar in this way. So they're both people who grew up without a lot of money for the upper middle class. In the scheme of America, they're they tend to have, you know, they're fine. Um, but for that criminal class, their parents don't have a lot of money, but they do have a lot of academic knowledge and cultural knowledge that they're passing down to their kids. So their kids tend to do pretty well in school, although they don't love school. They're pretty much there for the extracurriculars. And that's either sports or that's the arts in some form. And so what the sports and the arts allow kids to do is to say, well, real athletes, aren't in it for the money, right? Those are the sellout 
real artists aren't in it for the money. Those are the people who sell out too, right? You're in it for the love of the game or for the love of being an artist and to do otherwise is wrong. And so this identity kind of allows them to again, make a virtue of necessity of not having a lot of money. And it seems like their communities are also really supportive of it. So some of them go to private schools where the arts and sports are a really big deal. Um, and then they go to college. And one way to get into elite American colleges is to be really good at sports or also to be really good at the arts. And so they're really invested and everybody's really excited about this for them because it's helping them seemingly to class reproduction. And then once they're in college, it's also rewarded, right? Oh, you're on the sports team, it's going really well. Or you're an artist, like everybody's coming to your performances or your art gallery opening or, or whatever it is. And there are majors, right? So you can be a sports management major at some colleges. You can major in a variety of arts. And so it also seems like, oh, well, like if you have to go to college to be an art major or you have to go to college to be a sports management major, well, there must be a job at the other side of that degree. Why else would colleges have these? And so, so they are, and, and then they also have this identity of saying, oh, thinking about money is what sellouts do, right? So they don't ever think about like, how am I going to make money off of my sports interest or off of my artistic interest? And so they graduate from college and they think, oh, I'll find a job. Like, how hard can this be? And then they have no idea that it's incredibly competitive to get a job. So by this time, they, they no longer think they're going to be a professional athlete, but they think like maybe I'll work at the front office of an NBA team or something like that, not realizing that that is also a very difficult job to get. Um, and artists too, they don't realize how few professional jobs there are for artists um, and how competitive they are. And so they often end up kind of languishing, trying to find a job for years, not finding one, not wanting to give up because their entire lives they have been identifying with sports or with uh, arts for so long. And so they're kind of at this turning point at the end of the study when they're in their mid twenties of like, do I keep going for my dreams and being the person I wanna be? Or do I become the sellout? I've always said I would never become. Um, and so, I mean, I think while they're downwardly mobile in their mid twenties, they do mostly have college degrees because that's where they could play their sports or they could be an artist. Um, they have a lot of debt because they were never people who thought a lot about money and their parents didn't have a lot of money. Um, but with that college degree and their parents gave them a lot of cultural capital, like they had the skills to figure out how to get a job. They just haven't put them to use yet. And so I think some of them can figure out like, oh, I could be a teacher who coaches where I could be a graphic designer and use my art that way. And so I'm guessing they're the group was most likely to recover from their downward mobility trajectory that, you know, if we could follow them till they're 40, that they would have found a way back to the upper middle class. But in their 20s, they're downwardly mobile, at least for the moment. I think it's pretty unfortunate that way, right, that you sort of reiterate something that actually worked in their favor, you know, early on. And and the fact that, you know, they actually do have a lot of, you know, academic and cultural knowledge, but, you know, it can't really, you know, like materialize, you know, ideally, I think uh, it's, it's, it's all just pretty unfortunate that way. And um, yeah, you know, I think to sort of wrap it up, I'd just like to sort of conclude with the final question, which isn't so much about the publication, but it's more about your role as a researcher. 
Um, so as you already know, right, like the social sciences is very different from the natural sciences because, you know, we're studying human beings and we are a part of a lot of these structures, right? And so I think in that sense, it makes it oftentimes quite difficult to, you know, distinguish ourselves from our research subjects entirely. Uh, so I'd just like to know if you have ever felt that your uh, background or identity or experiences has in any way influenced the course of your research and how that might be the case. For sure. I mean, I think it influences a lot what I study. Um, and we talked about that a little bit already. Um, and kind of the specific interest I have in that. Um, it, I'm sure it influences how I interact with people, which in this study was less relevant since I didn't meet any of the respondents. Um, and probably influences how I analyze the data. Um, I think though the interesting thing is every study I've done has also taught me something about myself. Like I didn't know that I'm this way because of my class background. You know, there's a lot of ways I know I'm a certain way because of my class background. But I think every study I do, I'm like, oh, I just thought that was me. But it turns out that most people who grew up like I did and few people who grew up not like I did end up with the same traits. And so I, I think, I mean, all, all of my studies I am discovering something, it's not that I didn't know it about myself, but I didn't know it was connected to class. Um, and so I, I think the reverse happens too. Um, but definitely, I mean, I think a lot of this like just comes from my interest from my own life and, and even just kind of the theories I'm interested come in from living around people from different classes. So, so I think at least the interest part. Um, but I also, I do find it really interesting that I learn about myself in each project. And I think that's kind of the flip side of your question is like, not only like who we are affects us, but our, our work also affects us. Definitely, right? In fact, you know, I think it also sort of reminds me of a lot of the, you know, theories that I have read about and all of that, right? I tend to, you know, like think about it, you know, in like my own context and in my own life. And I think it just makes it all the more interesting. And I think it's also really fascinating to, you know, see how these actually have real world applications, right? So, uh, so yeah, it is, you know, quite like interesting and definitely relevant, I think. So yeah, that's, I think, both a strength and maybe a weakness as well in sociology, but that's just how the field is. So yeah, that's about it from my end. So thank you, Jesse, for taking out the time today. It was a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe or follow. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle DTRRH podcast for further updates.